Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Chris Beddingfield, a portfolio manager and one of the founders and key equity owners in Key Global Investors. They run a fund that invests in property assets around the world. They're very absolute return focus, which means they're not so concerned with what's going on with indexes. And I really like the way these guys invest. They're real property nerds. And that goes right down to the fact that they've analysed uh, what's the, the, the best properties to own in Monopoly and put their colour of their firm key as, as orange, given that they've worked out that Monopoly, the orange colours properties are the best to own. I think you'll enjoy this podcast. I know I certainly did. And please, Listen to the disclaimer, uh, this is not designed to be uh, an endorsement or investment in this fund, but just to provide education or all encouraged to get advice before making an investment. Thank you for listening and have a great day. I also take the opportunity now to remind listeners that this podcast is not designed to provide financial advice and encourage people to seek independent financial advice before proceeding with any investments. There's also a disclaimer at the end that I encourage you to listen to. Enjoy the podcast. Please remember to provide feedback. You can reach me at david.clark at codacapital.com. We look forward to your feedback and please remember to subscribe and share the podcast. Chris Benningfield, welcome to Inside the Road. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Chris, perhaps you could kick off by giving the listeners a bit of your sort of personal background um, and how you got to be where you are now. Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, I've, I've started... Um, in real estate or, or listed real estate early, early 1990s, 1991. The first half of my career, roughly 10 years, I was sell-side research for a number of stockbrokers, including uh, HSBC, James Capel and Deutsche Bank. And then in the early 2000s, I was the head of uh, real estate at um, investment banking at Deutsche Bank. And then um, didn't really enjoy that too much, uh, went back to research for a year or two at Deutsche Bank. And then just prior to the financial crisis, I went to Credit Suisse and, and went back onto the investment banking side. Saw a lot of really interesting things, um, learned a lot about debt, learned a lot about uh, how boards react at times of crisis. Um, and then at the end of that, uh, really was looking around trying to get back into research again, to be honest, because uh, that's what I really, really enjoyed. Uh, my business partner, Justin Blaise, who... Um, I employed actually back in 1998. He he was he just left Deutsche Bank. He'd previously had worked for ING Investment Management, um, running their listed property securities fund. He was number one uh, in that class up until 2009. He saw an opportunity in the global listed real estate market. He saw an opportunity where there were a lot of products out there, but the strategy all seemed to be very much the same, which was to be very much benchmark aware. Um, and uh, to have tracking error budgets, if you like. And they, a lot of the products out there weren't adding a lot of value. They're all hedged products as well. And we thought there was an opportunity in the marketplace to do something a bit different, um, to have an unhedged global real estate strategy to be index unaware. Um, and, to, and for us, our benchmark was to be uh, to focus on absolute or total returns. Uh, I, should, I should be careful about absolute returns. It's a long-only strategy, but... Uh, on a five-year basis, our strategy or our, uh, our benchmark is CPI plus five. So in 2013, uh, I left Credit Suisse. We, we set up a, a um, so if we went to a serviced office um, just across the road here at Australia Square, 
got our license, uh, wrote our IM, and uh, designed our process and launched our fund in July 2014. And, um, and along with some uh, our own money, which uh, yeah, we seeded it with our own capital. Neither one of us have taken any money out since. Uh, with our own money and some friends and some um, uh, family and whatnot, as you do, you we, we built the fund up to uh, around $5 million and, and sort of went from there. So you, yourselves and your partner are... Uh, big equity owners in the fund, I think 30% each. That's correct. And then Ben Long uh, came in later and has helped distribute and manage, um, who have got about, I think, 11 billion under management. Yep. Um, And I think they might have 40%. So your interests are very aligned with that of the investors. Yeah, so that's right. We, 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 so we launched the fund in 2014. In 2015, we knew we needed help. We always Mm. knew we needed a partner. And we were actually talking to three or four partners in 2015, early 2015. But Ben Long for us was an absolute perfect fit because of the track record, um, because they uh, had a great culture. They, it was a very simple structure. As you sort of highlighted the structure, it's pretty straightforward and, um, and kept us motivated and aligned. So we're aligned through our share ownership in the, in the company, but uh, we're aligned also with our own capital in, in, the, in the business. In, sorry, investors. In the yeah, we've, like I said, we've never taken any money out. And as I say to a lot of um, a lot of our investors or when we go marketing, the thing that really keeps us on our toes or really keeps me focused is we've got friends and family in there as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's easier to lose money for yourself than for your friends, right? So, so there's a lot of things there that keep us very, very focused. So let's circle back and just talk. You mentioned being absolute return focus rather than relative return. I think this is a really important notion for people to understand, investors to understand. Um, I'll let you talk to it, but maybe you can elaborate. My understanding of that is you've got many managers or people who take on and manage money for for investors, and they're doing that on the basis that they're going to outperform an index, and it might be, in your case, a global property index, and they might be trying to beat that, and therefore, everything they do and everything they think about is with reference to that index, i.e., how much is this security a part of that index? Do we like it? Do we want to be a bit more? Or do we not like it? Do we want to be a little bit less? Where you end up with crazy situations where managers say, we really don't like this security. We really don't like this investment. We only have 2% of it in the fund because it's it's 4% of the index. Am I right in thinking about that about it that way? Oh, I couldn't actually explain it much better than that. I think that's absolutely right. They wake up in the morning, they look at the index and they say, right, um, which ones are we going to go underweight, which ones are we going to go overweight? And they sort of start from the top down. So in our universe, Simon Property Group and Prologis are the two biggest um, companies from a glo- in global real estate. And if you look at all of our peers' portfolios, they'll have probably both of them in or at least one of them in. Um, you know, and they both have issues, quite frankly. I, I don't want to go into stock specifics, but we... we we don't own either one of them. We don't own any of the top four, uh, seven or eight or nine stocks. So the way we go about it is we we have a screening system that screens the best value and growth propositions globally. And we don't really care if it's the biggest stock. We don't care if it's the 200th biggest stock. It doesn't really worry us. It's a, Is it a good story? Is it a strong balance sheet? Um, is it in the right asset class? Is it Does it represent value? And if it sort of ticks all those boxes, then we'll buy it. Um, and if the second or the third or the largest stock in the market is expensive, uh, overvalued, or, or has some structural headwinds, then then we just don't touch it. And as a result, we end up with a 
I guess, a more concentrated portfolio than our peers. Uh, so today we'd, we'd have 25 securities in our portfolio. Our mandate is to have between 20 and 40. Um, but we feel that around 25, 26 securities gives us pretty good diversification. Um, once you start getting you know, up to that 35, 40, 50, 60 stocks, some of our peers have more than that. All you're really doing is diluting your best ideas and putting in stocks to protect yourself against an index. That just doesn't make any sense to us. So for clarification, you're buying securities which are largely listed securities and the underlying assets within those securities are property related. And what type of properties do they tend to be? We're talking industrial, residential, commercial, office, um, and in what parts of the world? Yeah, that's that's a good, good question. So let, let's start with what we don't own, I guess. Mm -hmm. So we avoid um, emerging markets. So the markets we tend to be in are uh, the developed markets. So Australia, United States, Canada, Europe, UK. We do have a little bit in, in Hong Kong, which we, we do see as a, more of a developed market. But we stay away from the emerging, emerging markets. We also don't own developers. So companies that earn... A, a substantial amount of their income from development activities that's developed to sell. So in Australia, I guess Mervac and Stockland are good examples of that. And we also don't own companies where they get where a vast amount of income is earned from funds management revenues and, and performance fees and the like. So again, in the Australian context, Goodman is is something that we would we would know. So what does that leave us? That leaves us with companies that are in developed markets that earn a vast substantial amount of their income from rent and contracted income. So we're not taking development risk, we're not taking funds management risk, we're not taking emerging markets risk. So, um, and then the type of asset classes, this is where a global mandate is, is uh, we think, much more interesting than a domestic mandate. So yes, we do, we can buy shopping centres and office buildings and industrial, which is what you generally get access to in Australia, but we also have access to markets like manufactured housing, um, rental apartments, student accommodation, data storage, self-storage. Um, uh, triple net leases. So we, we, we are relatively concentrated, as I said before, 25 securities, but we've invested across nine different asset styles. So we're well diversified across different types of assets. And that's pretty hard to do if you just have an Australian mandate because those, those sectors tend not to be very well represented in our marketplace. But with a global mandate, you can get access to those, those opportunities. Oh, and healthcare, sorry, there's another one, healthcare. We, um, you can really get good access to real estate-based healthcare globally, not so much here in Australia. Chris, you mentioned in your intro that you'd learnt a lot with the experiences you'd have with Credit Suisse, Deutsche and some others in transacting and buying property um, and analysing property around the world. Well, what are some of the key things that you learnt? And I think you highlighted debt and the use of debt as well. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so when we look at when we look at companies, we look at not just the, the level of debt. Um, during the financial crisis, we saw companies with very low levels of debt get into all sorts of financial trouble, um, and companies with relatively high levels of financial debt actually not do emergency capital raisings. And so it's not just the debt that matters; it's the structure of the debt, it's it's access to liquidity. Um, it's uh, the covenants, it's um, uh, uh, how well it's laddered, so you don't have bullet payments, for instance. So learnt a lot about that. So in my research days, one of the things we used to always look at was debt to assets, LTV, loan to value, and lower was the better, right? 
um, I guess the, one of the lessons I learned was sometimes the leveraged increase, the, the leverage increased the asset price, that the, the, the L drove the V. So we always look at leverage on a debt to EBITDA basis. Um, and it's something that I think differentiates us a little bit from our peers, which it's a, it's a banking measure. We know bankers look at it that way. The other thing that I learned as well is, um, you know, companies with lower payout ratios are going to get much more favorable treatment from their banks than companies with higher payout ratios. Um, when, a, when two companies come to a, to a bank and they both need capital in times of stress, uh, a financial institution or a bank will always look at a company with the lower payout ratio, the one that's retaining free cash and give them the, 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 the benefit of the doubt, if you like. So as part of our process, one of the things that we look for, and again, I think this differentiates us from everyone else, is we really like companies with low payout ratios because it's a credit-friendly strategy. Um, it's a low-risk strategy. It's also a tax-efficient strategy from a global mandate because 15% of any dividend that gets paid is withheld. So we prefer the companies to keep that cash and reinvest in themselves. And not have to bring the income and the tax to account, which makes it yeah. compound yeah. in a but much better can, way. That's right. We can defer that liability. The company can do, defer it for us, and we can get a compounding effect on that over time. And of course, if you're picking the right companies in the right industry, um, that cash can earn very good marginal rates of return as well. So. Sometimes, you know, people sort of think of real estate as being a yield product. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't think of it that way at all. Um, we think of it as a total return product. Um, doesn't matter how you get your return. We prefer to get more of our return in terms of growth than in terms of yield because of those considerations. And what type of return do you think is achievable for investors in these type of strategies? And what, what, what should their expectations be? Well, we, we benchmarked ourselves to CPI plus five. Uh, and, and we think that's a that's a bit of a stretch target. We, we know it's a stretch target. Um, if you look at the long-term returns, equity returns out of Australia and the United States, long-term real EPS growth in Australia since 1970s has been around half a percent per annum. Um, so add that to your yield in Australia of, in the low fours, you're probably looking at you know high fours to low five real total return out of equities in Australia. Um, and we think we can do that in, in with a global listed real estate strategy as well. So, so CPI you, plus five, we think, is a, is a reasonably good target, but we think it's a bit of a stretch target. We, we think we can achieve it. And those numbers that you're quoting are equities numbers? Yeah. And you're comparing this fund and putting these assets together directly against other equities? Yeah. When we, when we think about our returns, I know people are, will compare us to a global real estate index. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fine, they can do that. We compare ourselves to CPI plus five first. Mm -hmm. um, we then compare ourselves to global equities second, Australian equities third, and then global real estate kind of after that. That's the way we kind of think about it because it is a, it is a global equities type strategy, but it's backed by real assets. And um, one of our thing, one of the points that we have, we have high conviction in is we think that global real estate it, it has significantly outperformed global equities over a long period of time, and there's reasons for that, uh, and we think it will continue to do so. And so, um, you know, in terms of this sort of strategy, CPI plus five, we think is a, a reasonable target, but it's, you know, in this sort of environment, it's, 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 not, it's, not, um, uh, it's not a lay down as there, I guess. So talk to us a little bit about your process. If an opportunity comes across your desk, how do you think about that and how do you analyze that and look at that to get to a point where you're ready to invest? 
Yeah, so we, we have a couple of ways that we find our ideas. The first and foremost is we have a quantitative screen through Bloomberg, which essentially ranks the, what the, the universe the way we define it. So we take out the developers and the emerging markets and, and whatnot. It ranks that universe in terms of value and in terms of growth. And then it and gives us that list of the companies with the greatest value and the highest growth prospects. I won't go into the details as to how we do that, but that gives us a shopping list in effect. The second thing we do is we have, we're very theme driven. We, uh, because we're long-term investors, because we like to own a security for a minimum of five years, uh, we, we, we again screen that list, if you like, through some of our themes. And some of our themes include uh, aging demographics, uh, student accommodation, uh, um, uh, technology in terms of data, data storage, um, best in class retail. We, we have these, these themes. We also have anti-themes, um, sectors that we think have structural headwinds, which is outside of best in class retail, all other forms of retail. Um, we think Japan is very challenging from a demographic point of view, so it's very hard for us to sort of wrap our heads around um, that as a geography. Office is a bit of an anti-theme for us as well because of some of the... And why is that? Well, in many markets, what we're seeing is that the price of office in the secondary market is being priced above the cost to build, and that's creating a supply response. Um, and that's always a bit of a that's always a bit of a concern for us. We we spend less time thinking about interest rates. I know people think interest rates in real estate, but the, there's not much of a nexus there really. If you take a longer term perspective, we're more concerned about supply, and we're more concerned about the economy. So there's a couple of things in office. Um, firstly, there's um, uh, the financial sector is, is generally shrinking, or will, we think will, will shrink, and that's gonna take a lot of space out. In the United States, workspace ratios are falling. So whereas you used to have 20 square meters per person, that's falling now to 15, 14, 13 square meters per person. Um, places like Australia, we're gonna get the Hain report coming out today, and mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to see the banks growing at the same rate that they grew in the last 10 years. So we just think there's a, there's a supply issue and then there's also uh, some structural issues as well for office. So when we get our shopping list, we look for companies that are in sectors that are positive in terms of our themes and we pick those out and, um, and we allocate those to team members. We then do what we call desktop research, which is about a day's worth of work where we go through the accounts, we shore up the numbers to make sure the numbers that were coming through Bloomberg and the numbers coming through the accounts. We do a quick check on management. We do a quick check on the balance sheet. We do, we do rule of thumb measures like how much is the enterprise value per square meter or per door. We know what's a low number and what's a high number because of our coverage. If the company meets all of those initial assessments, we'll then start to, we'll do a deep dive. And a deep dive means you know, pulling apart the last five years worth of accounts and cash flows and balance sheets. Uh, doing a financial model, writing an internal research report, uh, just call, having a call with management or someone within the management team if there's any questions that we need to answer. But that report gets tabled to the investment committee and then we make a decision from there. And what's an example of a company that's gone through that process that you really like, that's got a tailwind, that's got a theme that meets all of that due diligence? Well, all of them, I guess. But um, what's, what's one that's happened recently? Um, well, uh, Sh uh, Shergard, which is a, a storage company, a soft storage company in, uh, in Europe, uh, which was a spin out of uh, a, a listed company called Public Storage. It's a really interesting theme. Um, storage is backed by a bit of an urban urbanization, reurbanization theme. Um, 
Right, so you're talking about people moving or downsizing and they're putting into lockup a storage space. That's right. Some furniture, some stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I assume never coming back and using it again. I, these people don't use the, the Clark family household rule. <laughs> if you don't use it in 12 months, get rid of it. Um, yeah, it's, it's driven by what they call the, the three Ds, death, divorce and dislocation. And um, in fact, the turnover is much higher than you think. It's the median, the median lease term is around nine months. Um, but where it's really interesting, it's interesting on a number of levels. First of all, the, the, the maintenance capex or the stay in business capex for this asset class is very, very low compared to office buildings and shopping centres, which means that generates a lot more free cash than most other forms of Because there's not, not much usage. People, you don't go and check your billiard table that you thought you couldn't let go of. Yeah, yeah they're just, they're roller doors yeah. and, a, and a lock, yeah. and a padlock. That's like it. on those TV <laughs> shows, right? Okay. Yeah, but they, they sit, if you're picking the right companies, they sit on pretty good land. You know, they're in urban locations. There's usually a higher and better use, so your downside is very limited. So you've got um, an upside that someone might come along one day and develop it and pay the whole site out and put so something that's it, yeah. higher, higher value out on top of it. Yeah, So okay. and, and in this environment, that would be industrial in, in those sorts of locations and, mm -hmm. and maybe in some locations, particularly in the south of Sydney here, residential or, yes. or something along those lines. That That's the sort of thing we really like where the downside is really protected mm -hmm. and you can sort of get some upside over time. Um, and, and so that company uh, also uh, storage benefits a lot from the reurbanization of what's going on in all the major cities around the world. A lot of people coming back into the cities um, and they're, they're living in smaller accommodation. They're living in, um, uh, so they're not sort of, the, the, the family home out in the suburbs is becoming less desirable. People wanting to move back into the cities, into apartments. While. So they're living in less space and from time to time they, they need more storage. And also the, the decline in this is not so much in Australia, but certainly in the United States, the decline in home ownership. Home ownership in the United States has fallen from 70% to 60%. And why that's important is um, a renter is three times more likely to use storage than a, an owner-occupier for obvious reasons because they're moving around. So when you see those sorts of trends, that's a positive as well. And home affordability is a problem you know, everywhere. And we talk about it a lot in Australia, but it's a problem all around the world. So storage plays to a lot of those, those themes. The company's really lowly geared. Um, its debt to EBITDA is about 2.5, 2.6 times, or debt to assets, if you like, 13%, which we really like. We really like lowly geared companies because it gives them room to grow. Um, and there's just so little supply of storage in Europe. Like, so the amount of supply of storage per head of population in Europe is about a third of that of Australia. And Australia is about a, roughly a third of that of the United States. So it's tightly held, very little supply, good thematic, well run, low gearing. Good little story. And how do you manage the currency risk with that? So the way we think about currency is we do a couple of things. So in our mandate, we ensure that we are diversified at any one time across five different currencies, floating currencies. And so um, you get some offsets from time to time in terms of that. The other thing we think about in terms of currency is we, t we deliberately take long-term views on stocks. If you're taking a short-term view on stock, you really do have to think about the currency because you can get the stock right and the currency wrong. <laughs> so as soon as you have an unhedged strategy, that's our view, you have to take that long-term perspective because our experience so far has been um, if you get the stock right, even if the currency moves against you, you're still, you're still going to do really well. And a good example of that is we've owned, since, we've, since we started in 2014, our worst currency by far has been the sterling because of Brexit and whatnot. It's been by far and away our worst currency. Our best stocks by far and away 
have been UK stocks in Aussie dollar terms. So it's a good example of, it, you can really think overthink the currency. If you get the stocks right and you take a five plus year view and you get the compounding returns of those stocks, um, it can overwhelm whatever happens to the currency in, the, in, that, in that same time frame, as well as being really well diversified across different currencies as well. That's important as well. So Chris, it sounds like you've got a lot of macro views going on in how you invest. What's your outlook for where we are in the macro cycle at the moment? So in Australia or? Yeah, in Australia and more broadly yeah, we, overseas, given you know, we, we don't seem to control the global financial markets. We seem to be the tail being wagged by the dog. Um, we, first of all, we're careful with macro. We, we, we're very aware how important macro is, but we try to uh, take longer term bets, uh, sorry, longer term themes to override that. But having said that, we can't be ignorant of macro. In Australia, we, we've been negative for some time around a year, maybe a year and a half ago now, we wrote a, a very negative report on Australian residential. Um, for six months or 12 months or so, we didn't look so bright on that, but it's starting to, to come out. Um, our view on Australian interest rates is we've held this view for quite some time now. The next move will be down. Um, that's starting to become consensus for just over that Christmas period. Um, and, and the outlook is not looking particularly good at the moment uh, from an Australian point of view. I think the pessimism in the US is overblown a little bit. Uh, what we see, we're, and we're very close to the companies that we follow, um, jobs growth is still very good. Demand in shopping centres is still very good. Office demand is still very good. Um, demand for apartments is still very good. So everything that we're seeing right now suggests that, um, I mean, the US is coming off a pretty good year last year. We, certainly, it would be not unreasonable to expect some sort of slowdown in the United States. But this talk of recession, I think, feels premature to us. Um, and then when we look to Europe, um, where if you look at the metrics there, it looks like it's slowing again. There seems to be a, um, particularly in Germany and, and Italy, when you look at some of the, the PMI numbers. Um, and, and we're not quite as pessimistic in the UK as other people are. We think that the fact that the currency has devalued so much has actually added a lot to the UK economy. And um, we don't feel quite as pessimistic about that as, as um, maybe some of the more broad commentary. And tell us about your track record. How does all that, how's that all been playing out for <laughs> investors and yourself? Uh, yeah, so since inception, uh, I haven't, I've only got preliminary numbers up until January. I mean, we, we much prefer to look at the long-term number than the short-term number. In the last 12 months, total return has been around 20%. Um, but we, we encourage people not to look at that last 12 months. Um, since inception, total return has been around, I think it's about 14.5% or 15%. Per annum as a compound annual growth rate. Yeah, per annum as a compound annual growth rate. And well, that's well above your... CPI plus. Yeah, yeah, it's well above CPI plus five. We've got to be a little bit... I'm going to be really brutally honest about this. Um, so we've had benefit from the currency uh, from that. So when we launched the fund, the Australian dollar is 90 cents, today it's 70 cents. It's a huge tailwind. It has, but the pound has hurt us as well. So if you strip all the currency out, which is kind of the way I like to look at it, um, total return has been around 10 11% per annum compound. So CPI plus five is around 6.8%. Uh, That's been our benchmark, 6.9%. That's where inflation has been. So the fact that even excluding the currency tailwind, uh, about 10 and a half, I think it's 10 and a half, almost 11%. 
So we feel comfortable about that. We feel really good about that. And we just encourage investors to think about the numbers in that context because the currency is not always going to be a tailwind. Um, so, but it has been and, and that's what it's been so far. Terrific. Well, thanks for joining us in, Inside the Rope. Really enjoyed speaking with it's you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.